welcome to the Clarity Fund Podcast. I'm Dr. Owen Anderson, and I'm joined by Dr. Kelly Burton. Hi, Dr. Burton. Hi, Dr. Anderson. It's good to be back. And we're continuing our series on critical theory and really going to be looking at some of the beginnings of that in 19th century philosophy. Maybe call it the age of critique, beginning with Kant, who does a critique of pure reason, a critique of practical reason. So you want to think about what that is. And one, one way I would propose is that this is a kind of continuation of the Enlightenment project, beginning with Descartes, who wants to question everything and only start with what he can know for sure. So he, he ends up with his famous cogito, I think, therefore I am. But he also ends up with God. He thinks he, he could show that he's certain God exists. And from there, he can give an argument to the reliability of the senses and the material world's existence. So Kant is taking that and continuing that, but he's even critiquing the reason itself that Descartes was using. Descartes was using reason to give his argument. And Kant's going to critique reason as well and put that under the microscope. And that, that's what separates this stage of the Enlightenment or this a whole new age of the critique is that Everything is being critiqued, including reason and the language we use to talk about critique. Yeah. And so we're going to start there and look into where does that get us? Yeah, good. Um, it seems like after Kant, we have a few other characters that are known for critique. They're often called the masters of suspicion, Marx and Freud and Nietzsche. And these guys influence what I'm going to divide up as the academy in different departments. So we have the philosophical critique in the philosophy departments. And we have literary criticism or literary critique in the humanities. And then we have the social sciences critique. And that could be in economics and psychology and sociology and history. And they seem to have critique in common. Uh, the application of it seems to go out into everything, like you just said. Yeah, being able to critique uh, knowledge itself. Right. And I think that connects us up. I mean, that connects us up to the very beginning of philosophy with the sophists and Socrates. Yeah. So one of the books I was reading, it's called The Critical Tradition Classic Texts and Contemporary Trends had a, a very nice intro that talked about four stages of literary criticism. So this is the literary critique, but I think there's probably a broader pattern we could look at. And they use the Acunian paradigm shift analogy. And uh, the, the author says that critique begins with the sophists. Um, they Actually, we don't have their writings on this, but apparently there's evidence that they were doing something like literary criticism where literature is a function of language. And Plato uh, was, what, critiquing the sophists? He was arguing yeah. with the, the sophists, and uh, it comes up in his view on uh, art and poetry and what should be allowed into the ideal city and what should be left out. Um, so 
he, Plato, thought that art is an imitation of the world. So somehow art is expressing being. And um, this is a new tradition that begins. Uh, so one of those paradigm shifts from the sophists where literature is a function of language or art is a function of language to art is an imitation of the world. Um, and then Aristotle is the next uh, shift, which I think is interesting because that's a very quick shift. Um, but these go on through time. It doesn't. It's not like they go away. Um, but yeah, they end up being two, two, a pair of antinomies. Right, right. Um, Aristotle has this view that art imitates human action or human virtue. So art as imitation, um, and that I think still continues in some circles. Uh, and then the next uh, paradigm shift is where art or where uh, criticism is is a formal criticism. So what happens is. Um, with the rise of uh, the printing press and a reading public, there becomes a distinction between uh, high art and popular art, and people want to argue about these things, and it becomes a broader um, a field, I guess. And uh, it includes what has gone before, but now they start to add things like... Uh, influence of the person's environment or external forces that influence the artist. So things change. And then we can say that's maybe connected to the modern period. And then we have this kind of postmodern uh, paradigm shift where we're looking at language and uh, language games and the free play of signifiers and the circularity of language. And now everything is text. And so that just brings us back to the uh, sophists. Right. So this is the new sophists. So I think I, I've been calling this whole movement of, what, what did you call it? The age of critique? The rise of the new yeah. sophists. Yeah. And the... I think so. I think there's, there's something like uh, a change that occurs when we go from expressing the imagination in language to turning language on itself. And, and it finds the very thing we're studying is the thing that we're trying to think about. Yeah. And we're trying to come up with a coherent way of imagining the world. And it's almost as if you lose touch with what Plato was talking about, the reality of being and using language to get to being. And instead, you're in uh, Wittgenstein's language games. Right. And Aristotle, um, in... In his Metaphysics, book four, he says if words don't uh, describe being, then our language is just words about words about words. Yeah, just noise. And that seems to be where we are with language games. This is words about words about words. It doesn't mean anything. Well, or the meaning is in insofar as it moves you, which again is the sophists. Are you able to give a speech that moves the jury to do what you want? And that makes it about feelings rather yeah. than anything else. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's of course, what pop culture is about, right? Is you'll see a movie and the, the music comes on when they want you to feel a certain thing. And you're supposed to cry at this point and laugh at this point, And it's guiding your feelings the whole time. Yeah. There's not really much of a debate of ideas you, you could do that but it doesn't happen in current popular culture you're just presented with here you're told here's the bad guy and here's the good guy and they'll they'll have some kind of conflict 
Okay, you know, this connects up with our discussion we had about whatever happened to the love of ideas. And it seems to me the further you get away from ideas, the closer you get to this kind of uh, constructed reality where uh, you're, you're supposed to feel a certain way and your feelings can be manipulated. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, I was reading a speech by Lincoln, and I came across a word I hadn't seen before, but I thought it was a great word, mobocratic. Yeah. So in contrast to aristocratic, where you're ruled by the aristocracy, uh, mobocratic, you're ruled by the mob, and you're, you've lost your freedom. You're just going along with what it says, and, and that's it. People are, would be worried about an uh, aristocratic society now. They don't want to live in one of those because they would view it as not having freedom. But mobocratic would be equally problematic. So I'm seeing a recurring theme here. Uh, we've lost ideas, and I would say we've lost good art too, but that's another conversation. We've lost ideas. Well, it's interesting, if I can interject real quick about that, it, when you were giving that timeline, art went from representing being or human virtue to critiquing those. And so now it's supposed to trouble you. And, and you see a painting of Picasso and you're troubled by it. It, it. it disturbs you instead of elevating your thoughts to beauty. Yeah. And so I think when you say we've lost art, they might say, yes, we, we're finally doing the right thing. We're finally uh, getting you to see uh, the ugliness of human so, so-called virtue. <laughs> well... What happens after this stage? What's the next paradigm shift? Is it getting ug is it going to get uglier? Yeah, right. Does it return us ever to beauty? Well, how about that? Um the this idea of the critique is not new. I mean, I think that's really what philosophy's been doing from the beginning. Right. So when I say age of critique, I'm speaking about this time uh toward the end of the Enlightenment, when the, the last stage of the Enlightenment or last stage of modern philosophy before postmodern philosophy. But critique has been what philosophy has been about. The, the Greek materialists critiquing the age of Homer or uh, Socrates critiquing the sophists. So in one sense, you can see why people in the academy want to do that. Yes. But in, in the Apology, Socrates warns his accusers of the next younger generation who will come up and they will see what was done to Socrates and they won't be as kind to this generation, the accusers, as Socrates was. Yes. And so I wonder if if there's this difference, right? So you have Socrates going about his critique in the pursuit of wisdom. But the younger students just go about the critique to do the critique. They just want to yes. criticize their elders. And I think Socrates brought an end to a destructive view of epistemology and and metaphysics i think and i don't see anyone doing that now we are if we're in the new sophists now we we're back to that uh radical skepticism and i would say a radical materialism that ends up in nihilism and we need someone to say no that we need to stop that socrates did it yeah yeah, that's right. And um, so, so you were mentioning Aristotle and art as representing human virtue. And a lot of 
postmodern art is about critiquing those notions of virtue and, and turning them on their head to say there really isn't anything like a virtue. Everything you think is virtue isn't. And so a lot of times what you'll see in movies now is the supposed hero uh, has vices and the supposed uh, villain has virtues. Right. And and it's all mixed You've up. You've got to it's problematize to everything. Yeah, it's, it's hard to tell who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. They're all they're all in uh, self-doubt because we can't know anything. And so the, the in that sense, art is representing life still. The art of the uh, postmodern or the art of trying to, the, the painting of a Picasso who wants to disturb you is representing the fact that the culture this person is living in doesn't have any sense of what beauty is. Yeah. So maybe Plato's mimetic, mimetic tradition was was correct. Art's an imitation. Yeah, well, at least, yeah, it, it, it's interesting, right? Because there, it, it seems like Plato means intentionally. Like art, the artist intentionally mimics the world. But what I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting is that the art tells us about the culture it comes out of. Yeah. And you say, wow, that, they, they call that good art? That says something about them. Yeah, you're right. Just like saying... This culture gave out the award of smartest human ever to Stephen Hawking, and he thinks universes come from nothing. Wow. Okay, so let's go back to that. We've got these bad ideas. We've got this bad art. We're we're with the we're with the sophists again. Where does it go from here? What do we do? I don't want to end on some kind of yeah. I th I think that's a good question of what, where does the critique go? Like I, I suggested Socrates had a purpose to it. And yes. Aristotle had a purpose, the end, the highest goal, the good. So we want to, I, I'm okay with critiquing things because critique is usually set up as against dogmatism. Yes. So you do critique against fideistic dogmatism and I, I'm all for that. But then the critique becomes unto itself. It doesn't have a goal. It's not teleological. So what is the goal of critique, and 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 where does it go? That's the question I think that you're getting at. And I in in I'm doing this parallel series on anxiety, existential anxiety. And in the last episode that I've recorded, I mentioned Paul Tillich, the theologian, and I read a quote from him where he said that the world seemed as if this is the this is just before World War II, as if it had lost any foundation on which to build. Yeah. And he's describing the 30s, but that seems to be equally descriptive of what we're, we're at. Yes, I think so. We're just about up on a new 30s. So when I say the 30s, I have to qualify <laughs> the 1930s. I think so, we've undermined the possibility of talking about metaphysics and metaphysical foundations for ethics. So the critique has... Uh, critiqued itself to death basically and yeah. we have no positive we have nothing to construct yeah there's no foundation on which to build and we need to so the solution is we need to get that foundation in place yes and identify what it is because if you put if you put something in the place of a foundation and it isn't one it'll just duplicate the problem right that's probably how we got where we are now bad foundations and that's what Descartes was trying to do. I mean, that his idea was build on a sure foundation, get to what is certain. And that's what uh, Kant wanted to do. Critique reason to make sure we're getting it right. So 
that's the role of philosophy. That's the method of philosophy, critical examination. But it also has a constructive role. Yes. So I wonder, how do we start to encourage reflection on the foundation? On what are you building your life? What truths, here's where the love of truth comes in, love of ideas. What truths are you building your life on? Yeah. Yeah, I think we need to bring that question up over and over and over again. We We need to make that idea go viral. Yeah, I wonder if that, that is the kind of thing that does go viral, though. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> the very nature of going viral is usually uh, something salacious. So uh, we have to have a, a school like the Academy out yeah. in the fields. Well, that's a good question. What if the Academy isn't doing what it's supposed to do anymore? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it is. So we'll have to go out to the fields and, and do this. Yeah, well, it always brings me, in my mind, the image of Cicero teaching in the ruins of the academy. Yeah. Although that's not right, though, because here you have, it'd be Cicero teaching next to a massive institution, well-funded, uh, saying it's doing the work of the academy. Yeah. So what? So then what do you do? That's, that's what you might uh, raise a question is everything done in the name of the academy actually the academy? If you if you haven't been taught to ask basic questions, then have you even gone to the academy yet? Exactly. And if we can see a distinction between the sophists and Socrates, then I think we should be able to see that distinction now. Where are the sophists housed? And is Socrates there? Or is he yeah. not? He's yeah. outside. Because it seems like the sophist critique, let me distinguish two kinds of critique and see what you think. The sophist critique is something along the lines of everyone is selfish and motivations are selfish. And so the other guy is using language to get what he wants and you have to use language to get what you want. Yeah. And the way to do that is because your audience is selfish and so you have to move their feelings so they give you what you want. Yes. And And the Socratic critique is for truth. Right. You say you know things, but I've pointed out a contradiction, which means you don't know things. So that's a very different kind of critique. And so maybe what we need to do is, is have different senses of critique. Maybe even different, we could come up with different words. But the critique of the sophists, which is what we have again to, in the present, is not the same as a critique of philosophy. Yes. I think that's a really great distinction. Let's hold on to that. Write it down. And so then, yeah, well then if... If you're doing the critique of the sophists, you're not doing the work of the academy. So the academy does critique dogmatism, and it does critique everything with the goal of coming to have knowledge. Yeah. So maybe what we need to explore is what is this critique of philosophy? What is its scope? What is its purpose? And... What uh, is the relationship to the constructive part of philosophy? Yeah. Well, let me give a quick example, I think. Um, The critique of the sophists won't hear the critique of Socrates because they'll just respond with, well, you're just saying that because you're selfish. Yeah. Everyone's in, in power. 
So they immediately reduce any critique to a power struggle. Right. And that's your power struggle. I have my power struggle. And I'll try to overcome you. But that's a whole different category. The Socratic critique, the critique of philosophy, isn't involved in self-referential absurdity. So it recognizes there are some things you can't critique, like your ability to use reason to critique things. Right. That's where you begin. You don't critique everything. Whereas the sophist kind of critique does allow them to question everything because it's really a non-cognitive criticism about people's motives. Right. So um, in our series on advice to young philosophers, we talked about the importance of ideas. It seems like this Socratic critique is connected to ideas. It's not just motivations. It's not just feelings and power struggles. It's idea-focused. Yep. Yeah, there's ideas and, and truth, not as in my truth. The sophist truth would be like, that's what moved me. It's my truth. But truth as in there are real things about the world that I want to know. Right. And they don't really have anything to do with what I think of them. <sighs> and that's why we could probably come back Maybe we'll call it the um, Solomon critique by the end. All, because I think he does have this same distinction going on. All things under the sun are meaningless. The only way you're going to have meaning is by affirming God. Yeah. The Lord. And that's the summation of a good life. Fear God and keep his commandments. Yeah, I like this. And so he has those two critiques there, right? The sophist one, which says all is meaningless, and the sophist agrees to that. It's all meaningless. It's all power game. And Solomon identifies that one. Yeah. But then he says, the only one that's going to lead anywhere fruitful is this other. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's a really good good piece to bring in. I like the Solomon critique. That's yeah. good. I think that will add in, because someone could say, well, now you're bringing in revealed religion. Now you're bringing in scripture. No, I think when Solomon's doing this, he's doing philosophy. Yeah. So it is true that's a book in the Bible, but it's it's no reason we can't treat it like a, a work of philosophy of thinking through these ideas. Yeah, and it's general, general revelation. It's wisdom literature. It's something yeah. everyone could relate to. Yeah, right. And, and just for our audience, neither one of us means by that that it isn't scripture. Right. But just that you can't dismiss it as only scripture. Don't bring it in to philosophy. Exactly. So good. I think we made some progress today on, on the history of critique and on the kinds of critiques culminating in uh, referring to Solomon. Yes. And the two things he notices, either meanlessness or fear God and keep his commands. Yes. And I think that's a piece that nobody in the conversation that I've been looking at is discussing at all. It's not even no. on the radar. So let's bring it on the radar. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. That should be what, what we're doing. So uh, thank you for a great discussion, Dr. Thank Gordon. you. This was very enjoyable. Yeah.